0: It's about surrounding yourself with people that are going to support your growth, that are more committed to your vision than your feelings. Welcome
1: to Playmakers. I'm your host, Paul Epstein, 15-year NFL and NBA business exec, widely known as the 49ers' Y coach. Now, your coach. Join me on this journey from why to purpose to impact. The key to it all, taking action. Prepare to get tactical as our guests share their daily playbook where purpose no longer has to be a distant North Star. It can become a 365 way of life. Let's go. Playmakers, it's about that time to welcome Sterling Hawkins into the conversation. Author of the latest top new release on Amazon, Hunting Discomfort. Sterling is out to break the status quo no matter what. He believes that we can all unlock incredible potential within ourselves, and he's on a mission to support people, businesses, and communities to realize that potential regardless of the circumstances. From a multi-billion dollar startup to collapse and then coming back to launch, to investing and growing over 50 companies, Sterling takes that experience to work with C-level teams from some of the largest organizations on the planet and speaks on stages around the globe. He has been seen in publications like Inc., Fast Company, The New York Times, and Forbes. I hope you're as fired up for the conversation as I am. It's time to welcome Sterling Hawkins to the Playmakers podcast. Sterling, welcome to Playmakers.
0: How we doing? So good. Thanks for having me on. So good to see you too.
1: Yeah, man, we are so fired up to have you. And look, While it's going to be a couple days, maybe a couple weeks before Playmakers are tuning into this, at the time we are recording, you are one day, literally, folks, if you're listening to this, within 24 hours of Sterling's big book release, which, by the way, humble brag, hit number one new release on Amazon, no big deal, no big deal. deal. So my number one question (laughs) to you, Sterling,
0: is... How are you feeling? I'm <laughs> in like a book launch hangover. I think <laughs> like part of me is so tired. I just want to collapse, and the other part of me is so fired up, so inspired, so grateful for the hundreds and thousands of people all over the world that have you know commented, shared things with me, purchased the book, told me what it's meant to them. Uh, like I I moved to my core. So you know I I can't express enough gratitude for the whole thing.
1: Yeah, well for the first time of several, if you're listening into this, if the words, the message, the spirit of hunting discomfort resonates with you, you can pause this and head over to Amazon right now. All right. And if you're not ready yet, then I promise you in 45 to 60, we'll be ready to pull that trigger. But here's where I want to go first, Sterling. Yeah. Thanks for that, Paul. Let's go. So you're coming off a massive day. Yeah. And I know what it's like to cut the ribbon off the first book, and it is an absolute roller coaster. And that is the understatement of the century. Yeah, you're also coming off another pretty big day, and it's a day that I'm a couple weeks away from, which is you turn the big four zero. That's right. So here you are. I call it seasoning. You now have forty <laughs> years of seasoning in life. <laughs> yeah. And I saw an email from you recently that talked about the number one lesson you have learned over the course of your 40-year journey to date. So talk to our Playmaker community about that number one lesson.
0: Yeah, I I mean, literally the most important thing to me uh, this past year and beyond is, is acceptance. And I mean that in a very specific way, like accepting things exactly as they are and exactly as they're not. Um, you know, it's, it's something when you come to terms with where you are, who you're with, how much money you have, what your relationships look like, what your business looks like, and you can accept it like right now in the moment, there's so much power in that it's, um, brings you into the present to be able to take effective action. So not only does it leave people that are really practicing acceptance, um, grateful and happy and empowered but they're able to get the results that they want and it's it's been an absolutely critical thing for me ah so good man all
1: right so i am in the midst of we'll start connecting the dots between your message of hunting discomfort as well as no matter what we're definitely going to quadruple click on both my latest message, as you know, Sterling, from all of our prior combos is more around the alignment of our head, heart, and hands. And before we even get there, and this is where it connects to what you just said, I always say that there's three table stakes of life. Like this is the ante to play because without it, forget about this head, heart, hands equation. Like we're, you're just going to be living on quicksand and the three are, and I think there's one that applies exactly to what you said. And I want to hear your reaction to this awareness ownership, and intention. So the three table stakes of life, something that you need to thrive, to get results, everything you just said, awareness, ownership, and intention. So I'm thinking acceptance is closest to ownership. How does that land with you? Because I, I really want to just see if, if we're on a similar wavelength here.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it's also an intention. I mean, it, it's really hard to come to terms with Everything You know, I, I know myself, like there are many things about this book launch, even where I'm like, ah, I wish I did that differently. Or I wish I wrote that a different way. Or I think a little bit differently about that now. And, you know, even though I might have some of those thoughts and feelings, like my intention is it happened. I said that I did that. I have this, whatever it is. And, you know, as I can live into that intention, I think that's maybe maybe the other half of it. What do you think?
1: Hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you this more on the tactical side. If somebody listening in is struggling to set an intention for their day, what perspective would you have on that?
0: Struggling to set an intention for their day. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in like do something every day no matter what. And it doesn't have to be the same thing. In fact, it's oftentimes better to change. And it could be something small like I'm going to call my mom today or I'm going to send this email to that uh, sales prospect today. Or it could be something big like I'm going to make 50 phone calls to potential clients, whatever it is. Right. But if you get up in the morning, you say, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this it starts to build your confidence and courage in yourself. So, you know, when the world falls apart and, you know, a pandemic strikes or there's this tech disruption or there's civil unrest or all these uncertainties in the world, you still know yourself as somebody that can get the results and achieve the things that you want to do. Um, it, it doesn't happen overnight. That's a muscle you've got to build over time. Yeah. And
1: when you started to build that muscle in your life, was it intentional or did it just happen? And then now (laughs) reflecting back, you could say, you know what, this is when I became more
0: intentional and aware and all the things that we're talking about would love to. I'll tell you, the, the biggest question I get with the book, like hunting discomfort is people look at me and they go, Sterling you don't know the relationship I'm in or what my bank account has or what's going on with my business. Like I don't need to hunt discomfort. I'm surrounded by it. And I say, Oh, you mean you're living with discomfort. You're not hunting it. When you hunt discomfort, you are ultimately and forever free of it. It's what true freedom is. It's not circumstantial. It's based only in and of yourself. And to answer your question, uh, I was thrown into discomfort in a a pretty big way. It was not a choice for me early on. I mean, especially in my younger years, going through college, even in my first company, like comfort was the way I wanted to go. And um, the circumstances afforded me that luxury. I founded a company with my dad that we sold to a group in Silicon Valley, where it went on to become part of uh, what became the Apple Pay before Apple Pay. It was a little fingerprint sensor set next to the credit card terminal in stores. Uh, People looked at this thing. This is early 2000s, by the way. People looked at it as like, wow, that's the future. Take my money. So we raised $550 million, multi-billion dollar valuation. Again, early 2000s. There's maybe a handful of companies in that stratosphere. And I, I think I've got this thing made. I'm like, oh. Sterling, I mean, you're in unicorn status, unicorn status, and I'm I'm ready to like declare myself the next uh, Bezos or something like I was so full (laughs) of myself, like I'm going to buy an island and a private jet and I've got this whole business thing and life thing sorted. Um, But, you know, life taught me a really hard lesson, which, um, you know, we grew too quickly, we raised too much money too fast. And when the housing market collapsed, we didn't have enough organic growth to uh, survive. And the entire thing went bankrupt. And and Paul, I think I've told you this before, but when that company crashed, my identity, who I saw myself to be was so attached to that, who my friends were, what success looked like, what my bank account said, um, all the things that I had come to think of as defining me were gone. And I started playing out this sad country song of a story where uh, well, obviously i didn't have a job anymore. Eventually, I run out of cash. I go from a big, beautiful penthouse downtown San Francisco to my parents' house, which is, i 'll tell you, incredibly humbling in your 30s. It's not a good look, at least wasn't a good look for me. And it, it got so bad, even my girlfriend broke up with me. It was like one thing after another. And I, I had this uh, moment of reckoning with myself. It was actually the first night at my parents' house. It wasn't the house I grew up in. It was a house they had moved into. So this is like a random guest bedroom. There's boxes all around. There's suitcases that I haven't unpacked. And I get into bed and I'm staring at the ceiling and I'm like, what, like what happened to your life, Sterling? Like, I've just been thrown into the unknown, thrown into discomfort. And I made this like very private declaration to myself. I said, I don't know what, And I don't know how, but I'm going to make an impact. I'm going to figure out how to make some impact with my life with three words that have become very pivotal to me, no matter what. And in the early days, it was really simple. Like, I'm going to get out of bed no matter what. Or I'm going to call my creditors no matter what. Like, really simple steps. Just like we were saying, every day I had one thing I was going to do no matter what. And that really was the beginning of building myself back. And it was the beginning of my realization that the only thing standing in our way is discomfort. We've got to take the actions. We've got to be proactive. We need to do all the things. But my money is on that the thing between your personal results that you're dying to have or your professional results is discomfort. When you can hunt it and be free of it, a whole new world opens up. I had to learn that the hard way. Yeah, no, I mean, you weren't kidding when you said
1: the the country song, brother. That's, oh, um, it was quite brutal. a journey. I mean, yeah, no, man, I, I think every everybody listening and whether we have that probably not that exact journey, but we've all had a chapter, hopefully not multiple. But I mean, you think of even the past couple of years with a pandemic, right, that were in many cases out of anybody's control. But then we did have a choice on how we responded. We had a choice on how we showed up. And a lot of it was mindset. Some of it tapped into uh, a rediscovery of identity, which you brought up identity uh, for a bit there. And where we'll go next is there's a quote that means a whole ton to you <laughs> in a loving way. I, you tossed the love to a family member, which I, I, I appreciate. Yeah. Um, may, have, may have originated somewhere else, but it kind of is the epitome of what you just talked through. So
0: hit, hit us with that quote and why that quote is so significant to you. Yeah. Well, my mom always had these crazy sayings when I was a kid. She still has them. She's still one of the closest people to me in my life. But the One she said that came back to me during that dark time was the way out is through. It's actually Robert Frost. But to me, like whenever I see it or hear it, like I hear it in my mom's voice, like the way out is through, Sterling. And when I was living at their house, I thought to myself, you know what, if that's true, let's put this thing to the test. Like, let's see if going through the things that I'm most scared of, most challenged by, most intimidated to do, if going through those things is actually the answer. And at the time, I was drowning in discomfort, uh, uh, uncertainty, challenges, self-doubt, refusal to kind of come to terms with who I was now after that catastrophic collapse. And it, it was easy to fall into the all that negative self-talk that I think many of us come across, at least sometimes. I'm not good enough. I'm not accepted. Yeah. I'm not the right person. I'm not who I need to be to overcome these things. And for me at the time, the thing that was most challenging, most scary to me, believe it or not, was speaking in public. I had so withdrawn from friends and relationships and business partners. Like, I was so embarrassed about what i had been through and where i now was i had pulled back from everything and it was difficult for me to have a conversation with somebody not to mention get up on a stage like i was the classic much rather would have been in the coffin than giving the eulogy like hands down kill me before i'm on the stage
1: a hundred percent and sterling because i know you as just a a Awesome. Awesome. Not only friend, but global speaker and thought leader and everything else. Maybe some playmakers are just meeting you today. So for context, I mean, because continue with your story on that initial fear of public speaking, which, by the way, me too. A hundred percent. I almost lost my lunch one time in the sports industry when the Maloof brothers walked in the locker room while I was delivering a client speech. And so the butterflies oh, me were real. Yeah. And so anyways, but I want you to get back into the story. But just right now, like biggest audience you've spoken at, a number of speeches, however you want to just kind of establish where you're at now, because the origin was you were afraid to
0: speak. Terrified. Yeah. And. So, uh, the largest audience I've ever spoken to with virtual is 86,000 people, like a football stadium of <laughs> people. I like, it's mind blowing to oh my me, gosh. uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of audience members in person. I've spoken for some of the biggest companies in the world, including Kraft Heinz, Intel. Um, and I'll probably speak somewhere around 50 times this year. And it's, um, just a testament to what my mom said. Like she's right. The way out is through, but, uh. Pick up with a story at at this time, and this is a number of years ago, I'm I'm sitting at the computer thinking about the way out is through how scared I am to talk and my email dings. And it's this general conference invite for a conference in Singapore wasn't to me, wasn't inviting me to speak. It was just basically junk mail. I'm sure they sent out thousands of them to all sorts of people, basically trying to get people to their conference. And I will never forget this moment where I hit reply and I said, why don't you have me speak? Best sterling. And Paul, I don't know if like the stars aligned or the heavens opened up or what exactly it was, but I kid you not, this conference director gets back to me. We end up having a conversation and it was like a video game to me. Like it was so surreal that I was talking with this conference director in Singapore about giving a keynote speech that I was highly unqualified for. You know, like it was almost like I had nothing to lose and a lot to gain. So I was just playing this game and, I talked him into it. It didn't get real for me until he sent me the legal paperwork, you know, confirming me as their keynote speaker. I'm like, what did I just do? Not only am I scared to speak in public, I don't know what I'm going to say. I've got no no things that we as speakers kind of think as necessary components. No website, no reel, no message, no nothing. And that sent me on about a 3 month obsession with what I was going to say, how I was going to say it, what my message was. And uh, my sister was right out of college at the time and I recruited her. I talked her into it. I'm like, listen, you don't have a job yet and I need help. And I would just practice this thing with her over and over and over again, like so much. So I bet she could give you that talk verbatim today. She listened to it so much.
1: So instead of a lot of us, we speak in front of the mirror. Your mirror was your sister. So she had the pleasure. (laughs) That's right.
0: I I did recordings. I did mirror. But sometimes it's helpful to like see somebody else's reaction and get their feedback. You know, that was a really important component of it. Uh, Not just of that talk, but I think successful people in general, they have somebody in front of them saying, here's what you're doing wrong and here's where you can be better. And that that was critical for me. And. I think oftentimes I hear people talk about, like, the more you practice, the less nervous you'll be. That was not true for me. Or if it was, like, I'm scared to think what would happen to me because I, weeks ahead of time, I started to melt. Like, I I couldn't sleep. I was full of anxiety. I was hot all the time. I'm getting on the plane, uh, just drenched. I'm so scared. And I get there and the day finally comes. I'm sitting in the audience and I hear my name called to come up to the stage and uh you ever been so nervous? Like the room starts to spin for sure. Yeah. That's where I was like started to spin. I, I can't like see straight. I'm not quite sure what I'm saying. And, uh, I think I blacked out for most of the talk. Like good thing. I practiced cause it was totally like autopilot, whatever I delivered. And I got off Paul and I was convinced I bombed. I'm like covering my eyes. I'm like, get me out of here. Like, please don't ask for the money back because I don't have it. Um, and of course, I see the conference director like making a beeline for me and I'm trying to avoid him. He catches up with me and he looks me in the eye and he says, Sterling, that's the best talk I've seen in my 17 years of doing this. Blown away. Uh, to this day, I, I'm convinced like he wasn't in the talk that I gave. I think it was just something nice he wanted to say <laughs> to me, <laughs> but he did. What he did do is he put me in touch with all of his conference director friends and I had this beginnings of a speaking career on my hands and again it was like my mom is definitely right on this like the things that you're challenged by fearful love scared to do embarrassed about like those things are exactly the way of where your greatest successes will be and uh, very likely the location of realizing all those dreams that you have so if the best way out is through
1: as we go into your book and it just launched at one point How much of a discomfort was the thought? Forget the action and the process and the diligence and the commitment and all that. I get it. But even the thought of, I'm going to write a book. Should I write a book? Is anybody going to buy it, (laughs) read it? (laughs) Like all these things, these inner inner pieces that I'm sure you had to tackle, but talk to us because, you know, you just launched a book. You're a number one new release on Amazon. You're a badass. That's awesome. But Uh, dude, I know you and I know your message. And while you've never said it to me in these words, like I'd bet money that you were super uncomfortable, like highly uncomfortable uh, at some point. So talk to us about this journey of becoming an author and everything and how discomfort fits into that.
0: So much so. I I mean, to a level where uh, people were telling me to write books for years. Right. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know I will. Um, and something inside me knew eventually I would do it, but candidly, I, I was scared. Who's going to read it? Who am I to write it? Um, why am I qualified to do this? Is anybody going to buy it? I'm going to do all these things, and then it's not going to make any difference. It's going to be a waste. But that's not what it sounded like for me early on, or I think for many people when they're faced with something that they really want to achieve. It sounds like excuses. Like, oh, I'm really busy with this right now. Or my time is totally committed over here or I don't have money or I'm not like when I'm this age, then I'll be ready. That's what I was telling myself when deep down it was a discomfort that I was refusing to acknowledge. And it was in the middle of the pandemic where I kind of came to terms with it. And I said to myself, let's be real, Sterling, you're scared about this. Like, this is a big deal. It's going to cost you a lot of money. You got a lot on the line. It's reputation. It's relationships. Like, it's all the things in my career. It's a pivotal thing for me. And I'm just scared to do it. And at that point, I I picked up the phone. I called the publisher. I, I had been vetting them for the last couple of weeks. And I called this one publisher up that I felt we had the best rapport and best uh, business relationship. And I said, send me the contract. Let's do it. Like, let me commit in a way, just like I did with a speech. It's it's a big part of the book. Commit in a way where there's no going back. And before I had too much time to talk myself out of it and convince myself that now wasn't the right time, I signed the paperwork and I sent it back. So I was on the line. And all the times thereafter where I felt like maybe I shouldn't do it or I don't want to do it, like that commitment called me into action beyond my feelings. And that was critical to get that book out there. And I think it's critical for anybody that's trying to reach that next level.
1: All right, Playmakers, it's about that time to discover your why. It only takes five minutes, and on the other side, you will better understand who you are, how you think, and why you do what you do. Here's how you get the assessment. Text the word why to 310-564-7857. Again, open up a text and send the word why to 310-564-7857. For coaching after, DM me. For now, let's get back to the show. All right, we could go so many different directions here, but here's (laughs) where I do want to go. So I love what you talked about, that inner narrative that, while what you were really thinking and feeling was, Oh my gosh, it's going to be a ton of work. Oh, who's going to read it or buy it or all all these things, right? This lack of, uh, there's self-doubt. There's a lack of confidence. I mean, we've all been there for different things in our life, whether professional or personal. So you said excuses and it sounded like it's not until, to use one of your other words, it's not until you accepted that the real reason was not those things you were saying. It was not that narrative it was something different. So let's bring it back to the playmakers. Let's say I'm listening in right now and I am willing to accept that I have been making excuses for a commitment. It doesn't even need to be as big as writing a book, but there is a commitment that I've been making excuses and I have not moved forward and I probably won't move forward. But the first step is awareness and acceptance. And so my question to you is, Should we always be tackling these things alone? Like, should I should I battle these things on my own? Or if a different piece of advice that some may have shared is talk to somebody else, whether a coach or a mentor or a friend or a spouse or whomever. How do you navigate? How do you know? Should I tackle this on my own or should I include
0: other people? I I think it's literally impossible to do on your own. I think self-accountability is fantastic for maintenance. You know, if you are reliable to go to the gym five days a week, likelihood, you don't need somebody to hold you accountable for that. But if you're making a stretch to something bigger, more than um, something that you really wanted to achieve that you haven't done yet, you need some kind of outside commitment and accountability or it's just going to be too easy to shrink back because all those excuses that are going to pop up in your mind will look real. And you will talk yourself out of it. And so what you need, like I'm all for friends and and family and like a personal board of directors. But what I talk about in the book and I think is critical to growth is building what I call a street gang. Not because I'm suggesting anybody do anything unlawful. I know you've got kind of a rowdy listener group, Paul. So let's let's make sure that that's clear up front. (laughs)
1: yeah yeah we'll censor any language go ahead continue with your gang comments
0: no bandanas (laughs) no cut glass like none of those things are involved it's about surrounding yourself with people that are going to support your growth that are more committed to your vision than your feelings and there's a couple of main parts of who is in your street gang that's important the first is just straight accountability not like Oh, you told me we're going to do this tomorrow and you didn't do it. And you make excuses for each other, like somebody that's going to go toe to toe with you and say, you didn't do it. Why? And when are we going to do it? Like, let's come up with another path forward, not because they're coming down on you, but because they're committed to your potential. And I found in the research, when you're personally accountable like that, you're 95% more likely achieve your goal not 70 percent not 80 percent 95 percent more likely to achieve the goal like if you actually want to achieve anything you need somebody that's going to hold you accountable so that's mission critical number one person uh the second piece is you need some kind of mentorship you need somebody to kind of show you the tactics and the way and maybe give you some of the connections um you know i found many friends in the speaker industry that have done exactly that for me. They've kind of said, yeah, I've taken this path. Here's what I would do different. Here's what I think you can do. Here's how I can support you. Here's how you can be better. Here's how you can shape your craft of speaking based on my expertise, based on my very specific knowledge about speaking. So mentorship is number two. It gives you kind of direction. The third piece is you need some kind of inspiration, something that lights the fire inside of you. For me, it's oftentimes family members. Uh, For you, it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It could be a TV show, could be art, could be a significant other. But something that connects you with your reason for being and is that fire to drive you forward when it's really easier not to. And and the fourth piece is uh, maybe the most underrated, especially in the business world, but I think the most important, which is love. Like as you're transcending who you used to be on your way to greater potential personally or professionally, you need somebody that's going to be there for you and accept you acceptance exactly how you are. When you're mired in that self-doubt of I'm not enough, I can't do it, I don't know if I'm going to make it. You're fearful about the exposure that you're going through. You know, you're unearthing parts of you that you were maybe ashamed about or scared of or angry of. Somebody standing side by side with you, not romantic love, but like deep human love. Accepting you through that is what's going to give you the foundation you need to keep going. And so anybody that's got those four pieces of that street gang can't help but achieve new results. Like it's all but guaranteed.
1: Yeah, well, I love all the elements of pun intended there (laughs) of the street gang. A couple things I'll double click on and then we'll get back into this one about love. We've heard and like you said, in business settings, that's not a very common word. I could argue that with some of the best cultures that I've worked with. It is a very common word. And even if they don't say it, more importantly, they show it more important. Right. I don't need to say it. How do I behave? How do I act? How do I make decisions? All that good stuff. Here's, here's the litmus test, and we've all been there, right? whether you wear the employer hat or the employee hat. Let's say you're wearing the employee hat in this case. You know, if you think of former bosses, there are some that just looked at you as a producer. If you sold widgets, they kept you. If you didn't sell widgets, they cut you. You know. And then there were others that said, hey, Paul's job may be to sell widgets, but first and foremost, I care about Paul. As a person. That's it. And then when he feels that love, then actually it makes it easier to give him more critical feedback, <laughs> which helps him get better. And then he can reach a higher potential because we're going to get a little uncomfortable here. But if you give me uncomfortable advice and I don't think you care about me, I'm just thinking you're an asshole. Versus if you give me uncomfortable advice, but I know you're coming from a good place. I'm like, well, that was a tough pill to swallow, but thanks for telling me.
0: And that's the only way through. Yeah, absolutely. It's the only way you're going to get better. Um, and, and I think, you know, an important distinction there around love is it's not like a tactical application of love. It's not like I'm going to love this person in order to get them to produce this. Correct. That's not real love. And that person will know that. To your point, whether it comes across through words or through emotions, like somebody knows when you're just creating this facade of something in order to get something that you really want. You really got to come from actually loving that person and accepting that person and committed, of course, to the business goals, but more so to that personal person's personal growth. A little tongue twister there. Um, and And they know it. And when you create a culture like that, to your point, like it's it's incredibly empowering. It's exciting. It's inspiring. And I think it leads to the greatest companies in the world. Hmm. Yeah. I just wrote down as you were saying that love is
1: not transactional, right? Love is not transactional. You cannot keep score. It is this unconditional. I'm just going to take care of Sterling. Love is love. Because that's my guy. That's it. And then, and then we'll figure out the rest later. Uh, now the other piece that I wanted to hit on too, was I wrote this down Your street gang, the ideal street gang member has to be more committed to your vision than your feelings. I've never heard it said as succinctly as that and as powerfully as that and thinking through my past. You're right. I actually can think of people that are in my inner circle and I'll be honest. uh, They probably care so much about my feelings that I'm not sure I get great advice from them to be honest, because they, uh, Hey, it's coming from a good place, but it's always like, Oh, you got this, you got this, you got this. And it's like, no, like I actually didn't say what I was supposed to, or I didn't do what I said I was going to do. So anyways, I just think if supporting the vision outweighs the feelings, I think that's a great place, a place to bring us to.
0: Yeah. Well, both feelings and considerations, because there's some discomfort as we were talking about earlier in delivering that hard feedback, right? Like if I'm going to tell you something that's going to make you better Paul. I'm risking you liking me. I'm risking hurting your feelings. I'm risking our relationship. And I've got to be willing to risk those things in order to make you better.
1: Very true. Ah, that's so good, man. (laughs) You use a word. You've said it maybe once or twice today, but I've heard you say it a ton. I know it's in the book a ton. And um, I know it, it, it probably gets misconstrued a lot. And so I'm just going to say the word and then tell me why the heck you use the word so much. And it's the S word and it's not four letters here.
0: (laughs) Surrender. Right. What does the word
1: surrender mean in the context to you? Because if I'm listening in, I might hit pause on this conversation or I might keep going. But talk to us about
0: surrender. Yeah. Well, you know, I've gotten a lot of feedback over the years. Like Sterling, you can't say surrender like that. That means give up. And I'm like, no, that's not what it means. What surrender actually means is to accept things exactly as they are and exactly like they're not. It's almost synonymous with acceptance. And I I mean that in two specific ways. One is surrender the resources, like the hard time, assets, materials, money, uh, whatever it is. You know, if I want a coffee at Starbucks, I need to walk there taking the time, uh, expending the energy, spending $5 on that cup of coffee or whatever they cost these days, right? Right. I need to give what is required to get what I want. I need to surrender those resources. But the second piece is almost more important, which is you need to surrender your resistance, your anger, your unacceptance—if that's a word—about any of those things. Uh, Carl Young, famous psychologist, I'm sure you've talked about him on the show before. Um, you know, his—I always get a kick out of the fact that his research is the foundation of the Myers-Briggs personality test that we all took when we were in like middle school. Remember those?
1: Oh, for sure. If not earlier. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if they're still
0: giving that test out anymore, but like Carl Jung's the man when it comes to psychology. And, and he said, we cannot change anything until we accept it. Condemnation about not having enough money, enough time, enough resources, not being in the right place in your life, not being the right age. Condemnation about any of those things does not liberate. It oppresses. And your negative feelings about whatever the current circumstances are is literally an anchor that will hold you back.
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh, so good, man. All right. I mentioned that we were going to take a turn toward integrating where you've been on this mission and movement. We're going to get to the movement. But this mission of rallying people around this thought and this inspiration of... Uh, just attacking discomfort, hunting discomfort. Now, head, hard hands. Let's integrate this thing. So you have a couple of dedications in your book. I'm going to focus on one part now, and then we may bring up the part that may be a lot more near and dear to you a little bit later in the combo. A part of your book dedication says, quote, to all those courageous enough to step out of their head and into their heart. So you can imagine, for a dude that's writing a book about head, heart, hands. When I read that, I was like, "Holy shit, <laughs> this is uh, this is resonating on a very deep level." What do you? We've been talking about this, so it may just reinforce a lot of where we've been going. But think about this, playmakers. Do you have the courage to step out of your head and into your heart? So Sterling, what did you mean by that and how can we do it if we're listening in and that's the mission that we're on?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think ahead is where most of us live our lives and the reasons, excuses, situations, circumstances, and, and it will sound a lot like if this happens, then I'll do that. Or when I get to this point, then I'll do this other thing. And it becomes very circumstantial and very... Um, dependent on the world, which is a challenging place to be as the world's constantly changing. If you're like, I'm going to look at the world to give me the answers, you're always going to be victim of the world. And that's what the head will give you. Don't get me wrong. Head's important. You got to have the strategy. You got to know where you're going. You got to, you know, do all the things. But that's not where real results are. Real results are when you step out of those reasons, step out of those excuses and step into the courage that it takes to do things like commit to something that you're not sure how you're actually going to achieve. It comes from stepping into your heart and the fear of maybe starting that business or writing that book like it was for me or launching that new division or sharing with your team the hard truths about where you're at right now, what you need to do to recover. You know. You can spend an entire life sitting in your head with the excuses and the reasons and all the um, circumstances as to why you're not living the results that you want. And it will end to a place based on research that leads you onto your deathbed having a lot of regrets saying, number one regret, I didn't have the courage to live the life that was true to myself. And when you realize that, you come to terms with that. For me, it, it was a little bit forced on me. And then it's been backed up by, you know, thousands of hours of research and case study and work with clients, everything else. But when you come to terms with that, you realize that you start living your life differently and you realize that where the results that I want actually live are not in my head, they're in my heart. And that's what this whole movement, the book and what my life's about.
1: Ah, oh, so good. All right. A couple things. You mentioned regret. At the time we we're having this conversation, I know a lot of folks uh, plug into the thought leadership of Dan Pink, and he wrote a, a phenomenal book recently about uh, the concept of regret and how there's different things. But I'll tell you from my personal research, both qualitative and quantitative, for all playmakers, if you're listening into this, imagine that you were interviewing folks that are in their later years of life. Some of them, in the, in my case, I've talked to folks that It's already in a terminal situation. Like they they know It's, it's a weeks or months game, maybe a day's game. It is not a year's game. And you talk to them about their reflections in life. And it's so fascinating, Sterling, that I have yet to hear that people regret the things that they tried to do and were just unsuccessful at. Hey, I went for it. It didn't work out. That rarely, if ever, comes up. You know what comes up almost every single time? It's when they didn't swing the bat. There was something in their head that never got out of their head. It never made it through to their hands. And you know how to connect the head and the hands? It's through the heart. Their heart knew what it wanted. Their head blocked it. They never acted with their hands. And they're unfortunately going to go to the grave with that regret.
0: No question. I, I think somewhat ironically, um, it, there's, I've been doing some reading from uh, German American theologian and philosopher Paul Tillich, and he says humans at the end of the day have two concerns, two things that they're preoccupied with. One are finite. Things like, I need to make this much money. I got to pay this much in rent. I need to open up this many more locations, right? Like finite things that happen specific times, specific place. And you do them or you don't do them. And those are important. But what's more important to humans, which they don't realize until they get to those later moments in life, is what he calls your ultimate concerns, Things like love, joy, peace, and happiness that no matter what happens in the world can never be taken away from you. And the ironic thing is, when you connect with that ultimate concern inside of yourself, that love, that joy, that inspiration, whatever it is, it will ultimately yield the results that you want in life as well. It's to your point, like you unlock the heart, and all of a sudden your head and your hands are connected.
1: Yeah. And, it's really cool how we're closing the loop here because as I'm even, not everyone's seeing this on video, but I'm looking over here at even the outline of uh, all the heart chapters that I've been crafting and each chapter, Sterling, is attached to a core value. So the four values, and it's not exactly as you said, but it is so similar and in spirit is 100% dialed in, in no particular order, the four values of the heart to make sure that you are being true to it, passion, authenticity, gratitude, and happiness, so, literally, if you scratch happiness and
0: put joy there, I mean, gosh, dude, we're having a very similar combo. So, uh, that's so cool. Well, I, I think certain things are are just true, and different people discover them in different ways and teach them through different mediums. Um, but at the end of the day, there's truth about humanity and how we live happy, successful, fulfilling lives, and, and they just are. And, you know, it puts a smile on my face are. to hear we're so well aligned already.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. So on the uh, just quick hit on authenticity, everyone wants to be authentic. And then you've given us some reasons on maybe why we're not authentic. Is there anything you haven't shared that like if there's a a small mindset shift or or tool or tactic, just something that has allowed you to be more authentic that you think playmakers could learn from?
0: Um, You know, I spend a lot of time uh, just in reflection, like I meditate twice a day, there's this great Book by Michael Brown called The Presence Process. I've done over the years hundreds, if not thousands, of hours of training and yoga and breath work and mindset and breathing practices, like all, all the things. And that book does the best job I've seen to date of capturing the essence of many of those practices and putting it on the page. And I go through that book. He's got 10 weeks of meditation in it. I go through that book on a pretty regular basis. I think I've been through it like six times now and it helps me connect with the the deeper components of myself, like really come to terms with what I'm afraid about, what I'm intimidated about, where self-doubt is, what's really true to myself and maybe more powerfully, where I'm not being those things today and when I can find like in the preceding weeks, preceding day, where I'm not living true to what I said I wanted to be and how I said I wanted to do it That gives me a medium for change. And, um, you know, I reflect on it and then I attempt to use it in the days following, if that helps.
1: That helps a ton. And it's a yes and. So for Playmakers, if I try to share a very quick piece, and by the way, authenticity is one of my core values. The reason I know that is because I know what it's like to not be authentic. And it created so much disruption and volatility and inner tension in a former chapter of my life. And here's the litmus test for everyone listening in. Do you have a work you and a personal you? Meaning in my case, I had a work Paul and a personal Paul, and he showed up as two different people. And it was almost as if I had a mask on at work, like the real Paul is the guy that was with his partner and friends and all this and parents and you name it, Like, like my people. And then at work, it's like I get suited and booted and it wasn't bad. It never negatively impacted anybody. But I always felt like I had to change. I had to conform. I could never accept Paul Because I made excuses, twenty twenty hindsight. I wanted to climb the ladder. I wanted to grow my career. So I became Work Paul. I put my cape on, Work Paul. And Work Paul was kicking ass and taking names and LinkedIn profile looks great. And then eventually, after I found my why, which is where we're going to go next, it took me to discover that inner why to realize, oh my gosh, there's a gap. I never knew there was a gap. I just thought I was one Paul. And in reality, as I reflect back, I for sure was two. And so I just think that's an honest, authentic, inner scope of if you're listening in, do you show up differently in different environments? And until you're only one person, so until you show up the same in every environment, that's authenticity at its finest. And I think it sounds utopian, but I think it's something that we can all strive for.
0: So good. Like that that's exactly uh, what I would say about it. You said it mo- much more articulately than I would. And I think, Another uh, litmus test might be how do you answer the question when people ask you how you're doing? Because if you're always saying fine or good, well, chances are it's probably not all that great. If you meet somebody that's like unlock the intention, the the core why that you know, I know we're going to get to that in a minute. When you unlock that stuff, you're not just fine. You're great and you're sharing things. And, and by the <laughs> way, when you're not, you're saying you're not. You know, you're not delivering like, oh, here's all these great things that I'm doing on paper, but I feel terrible inside. So, you know, I think there's a couple of different ways to see it, but finding that inside of yourself to becoming you, the full expression, full potential of you is huge.
1: Yeah, it's it's the differentiator. It's the separator between living and feeling alive. They're two very different things. We're all living, but only a, a percentage of us feel alive. And my theory is authenticity is connected to feeling alive. All right. Let's talk about your why. So not only in a why assessment, which we we shared that experience on behalf of the why institute, you and I actually share the same why there's nine possible why's you and I share the why of contribute. So, a just talk to us about how would you define contribute? And B, what are the
0: contributions that you would like to make as you go forward? It's a good question. How would I define contribute? I think at its most meaningful level to me is it's that I'm willing to sacrifice my ego, my identity, um, my self-doubt in order to deliver something of value to you. Uh, It's not totally different from what we talked about earlier. Like I'm going to put myself on the line committed to making you better and when you can show up like that i think that's that's what real contribution is at least to me and for me i see like deeper than just contribution generally like the contribution that uh i want my life to be about and is about is that people live courageously like i lived a lot of my life especially my younger life not courageous at all like clinging to comfort and certainty and you know all the reasons and excuses and and Feeling very safe and protected in that space, but empty inside. And once I found some of that courage in myself, I realized that that was the thing that I most needed. And that's the purpose of my life is to share what I was missing with others and how to get it. Well, you brought up courage, which
1: going back a few Part of your book dedication was as a reminder for everyone listening and to all those courageous enough to step out of their head and into their heart. In a moment, we're going to come back to the other side, and this will be the grand finale of the other mention, the lovely mention of your intro book dedication. But before we get there, where can folks not only pick up their copy of Hunting Discomfort? Where can they find you, follow you? How would you like for playmakers to just be
0: in your world and be a part of the movement? Amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, The book's available, huntingdiscomfort.com. Anywhere great books are sold, you can find it. And by the way, on that website, there's a bunch of free gifts for anybody that picks up a copy. And if you want to learn more about me, my work, connect with me, join the no matter what movement, Sterling Hawkins is your best place to do that. Um, it's full of not just meaningful messages for yourself and for your business. But more importantly to me anyways are the hundreds and thousands of people that are part of the movement sharing their pictures sharing uh, what they're committed to and you can go and check that out and even declare something you're committed to for yourself you can create your very own no matter what to step into the movement so would invite everybody to join us.
1: Yes. Consider all playmakers a eager to hunt their discomfort and be a part of the, no matter what movement join me as a part of that movement, join Sterling. And again, Sterling, I know, uh, you don't consider yourself even the main face to you. This is a completely just, this is a tribe. Uh, this is your ultimate street gang, if you will, that has those ultimate connections. So that's beautiful, dude. All right. As we get out of here, the other part of your book dedication, I'm not going to steal your thunder. I'm not going to add a lot of color here. But there is a a special lady that has been in your life that inspired uh, the book and beyond. So talk to us about this special woman.
0: She's been a, a fundamental part of my life since I was born. It's my grandmother. And she passed away when I was 13. And I was very sad at the time. But I didn't cry. I was trying to be you know, strong Sterling to lead the family as the the oldest son in my family. And, you know, I loved her to death, but I wasn't willing to accept the tremendous grief of her loss, at least at the time. And in more recent years, as I've started to reflect on that and come to terms with how sad that was for me to lose her, I remember the days, the final days that she was with us where she would share pictures, she would talk openly about some of her memories, some of her wishes, um, her wishes for us. And not in like a contrived kind of way, but very open-hearted, some very joyous, some terribly grief-filled, like knowing that she had days to live and she opened her heart anyways. And you know, if she can live the final days of her life, facing the ultimate unknown with that kind of courage, then I can be courageous enough to write a book, to post something online. And that inspiration is a driving force for me, always has been and always will be.
1: God bless her. God bless her courage and bless your courage, man. I I think you are you've already inspired a movement and you're just getting started. We are just getting started. So on behalf of all playmakers, Mr. Sterling Hawkins, Thank you so much for being on. Thank you, Paul. It's an honor. Another episode in the books. You know the drill. If it added value to your life, subscribe, share, leave a review, and help grow our Playmaker community. For keynote speaking and why coaching, visit paulepsteinspeaks.com. And last call, if you haven't already, take your why discovery now, pull out your phones and text the word why. To 310-564-7857. Again, text the word Y to 310-564-7857. Playmakers is proudly produced by Detroit Podcast Studios. Until the next time, dominate the day on purpose.